And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. If you're listening to my show, you're looking for tips on how to work smarter, not harder. And let's be real, you're already working hard to earn your money, but how do you make sure that your money is working hard for you? Here's how. With a Betterment Automated Investment and Savings app, your money will go to work. They've got technology that will provide you with advanced tools, and they're built to help maximize your returns, not to mention your time. They have expert-built portfolios of low-cost exchange-traded funds. You know I love those exchange-traded funds. There's automated investing technology, and as part of that, automated rebalancing. Many of you have been asking about rebalancing, and it sort of feels like a hard thing to do on your own. With Betterment, easy peasy. They do it for you. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, Performance is not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. With Fidelity Wealth Management, a dedicated advisor can work with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Plus, you'll have access to specialists in estate planning strategies. So you're not just growing and protecting your wealth, you're sharing it. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Welcome to the Jill on Money Show. It is Saturday, September 16th, and I am pre-recording this because I'm not working on Rosh Hashanah. Don't worry. Shana Tova to our Jewish listeners. Happy New Year to anyone who is celebrating. We so appreciate that you are listening to this probably after the high holidays. I get it. Uh, today, I am excited to give you a great interview that we conducted recently with Brad Stolberg. He is an author. We've had him on before. In fact, he was on to uh, talk about uh, his previous book called The Practice of Groundedness. And he had also written a book called Peak Performance. And we just get along so great. And I love this guy because it's a lot of fun to uh, have him on the air and kind of uh, kid him a little bit. And uh, one of the things that I thought was so interesting is that he's got this new book out called The Master of Change. And this was quite interesting because I feel like it has a real resonance with me because it sort of feels a little bit like the Great Money Reset. It's a response to the kinds of changes that we have seen over the last four or five years. And uh, of course, one of the things that uh, I love about this guy is he's a big thinker, but he brings it back to practical stuff. And this is the kind of interview that you will have access to when you subscribe to the Jill on Money live service. This is part of the bonus content, live interviews like this. So I think you will be very delighted to hear this and we are delighted to present it to you. So here is part one of our interview with Brad Stolberg. Welcome back to the pod. How are you? Hey, Jill. I am doing well and it is a pleasure to be back. It's great. We had you on for the practice of groundedness, which was, I feel like that was your reaction to all of your crazy zealousness around um, passion and peak performance and all this nonsense. You learned as you grew up that we don't have to be at peak performance, right? You know, I still think that peak performance is defensible. What I would argue is that I broadened my definition of how I think about it, which is maybe a little bit of a cop-out, but um, peak performance 
is not just what happens at the top of the mountain, but it's also what happens on the way up and on the way down and how many mountains you climb. And I think Groundedness is really a book about sustainable excellence. I like I like that you have you figured out the right answer to that because you knew I was going to bug you about it. I have a little bit of a problem of trying for peak anything or you know the way to maximize everything like because life does knock you out and it can bring you down, it can bring you up and so much of it is luck and so I always feel a little bit like I don't want people to feel like they have to be striving for the peak all the time when when valleys do come. But I like your answer too. When did you write Peak Performance? I wrote Peak Performance in 2015 and it came out in 2017. So let me start with this, Brad. In your little bio, it says that you uh, research, write, and coach on sustainable excellence. How do you define that? I define that as feeling good and doing good in a way that supports your long-term goals. And how did you come up? upon this? Like, what is your background for those who did not hear our first interview with you? Like, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you come to this work. That's right. So my way back when background is I studied psychology and economics as an undergraduate student. I was pretty driven and fairly smart and extremely insecure. So I did what people with that combination of traits do, which is go get a job at McKinsey. I worked at McKinsey and Company for two years. I decided that I was really interested in healthcare. I went back for my graduate degree in public health. And it was around that time that I started thinking less about health as the absence of disease and more about health as human flourishing. And um, that really led me down this windy road to where I am today, which is what I call excellence. You know, when you think about this, I mean, you do draw a lot on social science and a lot of your storytelling. So how do you get into that world without actually studying it? Because you feel like you know enough of it through psychology and economics and public health? I do. And I think that there's such an overlap, right? We think in silos. So I'm, I'm on faculty at Michigan's public health school. And I probably know less about epidemiology than I do about behavioral science, Um So I think that there's a lot of silos, as I said, in academia. And what I try to do is look across those silos for patterns. And then those patterns give me pretty high degree of confidence that I'm onto something or that something might be true with a capital T. And I'm very fortunate because someone that is just trying to do novel research, right, trying to create new knowledge on a very specific, precise topic, they have to get really, really narrow. And I get paid to do the opposite, which is to look across and go broad. So I want to talk a little bit about your new book, which is called Master of Change. So why did you want to focus on change and how people, um, how we react to change, what happens to us? What is it about change that interested you? So a, a couple of things, Jill. The first is that, as you know, we all write the books that we need. So I personally am somebody that really attaches to stability. And change was really frustrating for me. And um, this is not new. This is probably since my earliest formative memories. I'm somebody that likes to have a plan and stick to it. Now, I could argue that this book had been on my mind for the last, I don't know, two decades. The inspiration for this came at the beginning of the pandemic when every major outlet was running the same article, which is when are we going to get back to normal? 
And for whatever reason, my brain just latched onto that. And it, it occurred to me that that's probably the wrong way to conceive of what's happening. We're not going to get back to normal. You almost never get back to where you started when there's a major disruption. And most of the time, you wouldn't even necessarily want to. So I did what I do, which is I get really curious about an idea. And I started to think about like, what's the genesis of this back to normal? Where did our framework for thinking about change come from? And it turns out for the last 200 years, it's come from the scientific theory called homeostasis, which states that you have order, then there is a disorder event, there's a change, there's chaos, and then you get back to order. And most people listening, you've probably heard of homeostasis. It's one of the most popular scientific concepts there is, right? Yep. But it turns out that homeostasis is not actually very accurate. It's a little bit misguided. And 25 years ago, the scientific community decided that a better model for change is what they call allostasis. You have order, then there's disorder, there's chaos. And then yes, you crave stability, but that stability is somewhere new. So you don't go back to order, you go to reorder. And this just like lit this intellectual spark in my brain that said, holy crap, like we've been thinking about change completely wrong. And what's interesting in your telling of this, and you open the book this way, so just, um, thank you for like laying this out in the introduction so you didn't have to make me work 80 pages to get through this, is that you also talk a lot about that there is a way of thinking about this where you have chaos, but you don't have to fall apart in that chaos. And I think that's where that fear factor comes in, that when people feel so uncertain about change, they're fearful, their brain, their like neural network is lighting up, making them crazy because they don't know what's on the other side of that. And so if you can think about reorder, is there a message around reorder that can be helpful for people who are looking for like, what's the other side of this? It's not that what it was, but it is usually something different. It's not necessarily better or worse. It's just different, right? That's exactly right. In in having that expectation that you're not going to get back to where you were is so freeing because we spend so much time when we are confronted with change trying to undo it or resist it or get back to where we were and it almost never works like that. Now, this doesn't say throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say to hell with it. I'm going to go with the flow, with the whims of life wherever they take me. But it is to say that we can be in conversation with disorder and we can help shape that reorder. So we can't control it. We can't get back to where we are, but we can dance with it, so to say. So if you are looking back at the pandemic and you look back to yourself in March of 2020, what is it that you felt when you were going through that? How do you like and put this in the in your silos of order, disorder, reorder. So go back to tell me what was happening for you in March of 2020. And how could we have, how can we all have, like, what would have been the right messaging to ourselves in this process so that we weren't so freaked out? Because it was so scary. It really was. And I don't think that we necessarily would have been less freaked out. Jill, like, as you said, this was really scary. I think that maybe what could have been different is we could have more quickly accepted what was happening hmm. and not spent that futile energy trying to delude ourselves or get back to where we were, but say, hey, this is the new reality. So what was happening in, in 2020 is everything was ticking along well enough. And then we have this massive disorder event, this massive pandemic. 
And it creates all of this uncertainty, uncertainty for our health, uncertainty how we work, uncertainty how we play, uncertainty how we parent, on and on and on. And I think that, again, so much of the stress that we faced and the suffering was not just the fear and the pain of what was happening, but it was the fact that we were resisting it or we were trying to undo it and get back to where we were. Mm. There's this equation in the book that I think is really important that is apropos here, and that is that suffering equals pain times resistance. Hmm. So painful stuff is going to happen in our lives, whether it's a pandemic, whether you throw out your back, whether it's the end of a marriage, whether it's the loss of a friend, whether it's your book flops, you don't get the promotion you want, plenty of examples of pain. And pain hurts. Like there's no Hmm. one doing pain. It sucks. But the more that we resist it and we push against it and we fight it, the more that we suffer. You know, I was just thinking, you know, you talk about an executive, but I also want to talk about like, without going political on you, there was also a feeling, I think, around some of the C-suite executives who seem to be pounding the table for a return to the way things were, which I also think was not helpful. It was not helpful to have people say like, well, you know, we want you back in the office and then it was back and then no back and then back. And then, and even today I find it um, disingenuous that many CEOs are like, we must be doing work exactly the way we were doing it in 2019, because that would have seemed to me like we've gone through this terrible disorder and chaos and lost the ability to reorder in a way that takes it at least like, let's learn something and reorder and get to something different. So tell me about how you think about the the reordering process when it comes to the workplace even. Right. So there's this framework that I, I introduce in the book when talking about going from disorder to reorder. And this is such an important time, whether it is in organizations, culturally, or individually. So this applies across the board. And that is because there's a period of plasticity, which is just science speak for like, you can mold things, you can shape things, right? There are new, new norms. We get to shape those new norms. And the norms that we put in place, they very quickly become rigid, and then they're harder to change. So I think that what you're getting at, which I completely agree with, is there is this period of plasticity right now around how we work. And if we just go right back to where we were and we try to codify that and make it rigid again, then we've completely blown up an opportunity to change. What's the point of not acknowledging that essentially no one is working in in a white collar office unless you really, really have to, unless you're on a trading floor or you're with a client? Like, Why are we trying to go back in time? Because is that a more comfortable place for some of these people? Well, I think it comes back to this expectation, right? If you were taught that change is homeostatic and the whole goal after chaos is to get back to where you were and that's all that you know, then like that's your playbook. Of course, that's what you're going to do. So I think some of it is just a, a norm and an expectation that I think needs to be shifted. That's the most generous view. The least generous <laughs> view is exactly what you said, which is that people are lazy And people want to do what's best for them. And it can take extra effort to manage really well when you can't just look over someone's shoulder. I also think, and this is going to be popular with some people and and make other people dislike me very much. No, never. There's a whole cadre of people in the workforce whose job is kind of to create the illusion of doing work, even though they're not really doing anything. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that is just like showing up and playing the performative part of being busy. 
And I think a lot of people attach to that. Like you come into the office and like, you, you know, your job is creating the illusion of working nine hours, even though you maybe only have two hours of work. And it's like, why not just do the two hours of work and enjoy your life? The other thing is that if you're the boss and the, someone is completing the work, why do you care so much? What is that? What do you think? Yeah. Ooh, this is such a good question. I think that this is a really challenging thing for leaders and managers. And I'll tell you why, Jill, especially new managers and new leaders. When you're an individual contributor, which I am, which you are, there's no interview. You do the interview, the interview exists. There's no book. I write the book, the book exists. Like It's very clear what my work product is. When you're leading or managing, that's often taken away. Your job is so much more ambiguous and amorphous. It's just like to steer the ship in the right direction. And I think part of what managing in person allows you to do is it gives you some of that visible feedback that you're used to. So, oh, hey, like I can stop in and, and have a one-on-one -on -one with Brad or look over Brad's shoulder and make sure that he's on track. So mm. you feel like you're doing something. Yeah. Whereas if you don't have that, then it, it's, it's even harder, right? It's harder to know. It's harder to build that trust. And I empathize with managers and leaders. I mean, I am, a, I am a craftsperson, right? There's a reason I write books, not run an organization, because I am very much satisfied by having a blank page and then filling it. And I think that that is the biggest trap that happens when people go from being individual contributors to managers and leaders is they no longer get that satisfaction. And really good managers are able to release from it. But the not so great managers, they tend to micromanage in place of what they used to have. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But it's so funny because that's really essentially like the corporate version of like basically all in on homeostasis, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because that's really like, oh, you know what? I don't want to have to do the work. And it's by the way, I think that so many human beings and corporate animals especially, but human beings in general, like all you want to do is just say, make the suffering go away. And the resistance to all of that is actually debilitating, right? And so like, I resist the idea that actually I have to like rethink the way people work and what happens and that there is a reordering and we aren't going back to, you know, 2019. And like, I, I'm sort of like over the idea that people have literally just said, no, you know, now that the we had workers who had some power, now we have the power back. Ha, ha, ha. Like, I can't stand that kind of mindset. And so it made me think a lot about your flexible mindset and how I'm not sure that, you know, for all of the baloney that the, uh, the C-suite prattles on about that I hear all the time, I'm not like particularly in, impressed with the flexible mindset being in corporate America. Are you? I think it depends. There are some leaders that are great and are doing this very well. And then there are others um, that are not at all flexible. They're very rigid. I do think that over time, like evolutionary pressures will play out. Yeah. And those that can be rugged and flexible will ultimately win um, the long game. And I think that you're already starting to see this in some places of the economy. You know, for many of the people who are listening, they hear rugged and flexible, those do seem like oxymorons. So let's talk a little bit about that and how you lay that out in the book. Let's step back before we get into rugged flexibility and let's just talk about two different ways of thinking. So one way of thinking is called dualistic thinking. It's very linear. It is this or that. You are good, you are bad. You resist change, you accept change. 
you are strong or you are flexible. And linear thinking goes way back to ancient Greece, and it underlies the scientific method. It's a huge part of Western thought, and it's very, very important because it allows us to compare two things, to judge two things, to, to discern what works and what doesn't. So there's absolutely a place for linear thinking. But sometimes linear thinking isn't enough. And then there's this other kind of thinking, which is called non-dual thinking. This doesn't say this or that, but it says this and that. And I think that when it comes to navigating change skillfully, we need to think non-dually. So rugged flexibility. Most people, when faced with change, they take these two polar approaches. One is I'm going to be really rugged. I'm going to pick myself up by the bootstraps. I'm not going to change. I'm going to resist. I'm going to be strong to who I am, and I'm just going to white knuckle through this. Another approach is being super flexible. I'm going to bend. I'm going to go with the flow. I'm going to become one with what's happening. And what I argue in the book is that both those mindsets and silos are problematic, and the best way to navigate change is actually to put those things together and not to be rugged or flexible, but to be rugged and flexible. I was just talking to somebody about this who said to me about linear thinkers. It's like that the if you go through college and graduate school, that you're often in a linear thinking and processing mode. But once you get to the real world, it is not at all like that. Did you find that as well? Yes. Oh, that's such a great observation um, from this colleague or this friend of yours. 100%. And I think that this is the difference between um, ivory tower thinking or scholastic thinking and then rubber meets the road being a mature adult thinking. Okay, that's just part one. We have a whole nother episode tomorrow, which I think you're really going to like. If you'd like to check out Brad Stolberg's book, you can get it wherever you buy books. And we have stuff on our website for Brad's information. Just go to jillonmoney.com and maybe we can support your effort to be a master or a mistress of your own change. Okay. All right. A little funny. Master, mistress. You get it. Anyway. uh, Okay. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen and lift someone up. Change your work, change your wealth, change your life. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow. 